so this is, uh, this is weird, right? Uh, we're going to just start together as a church um, opening February 8th, and we're going to just jump into a book. And um, there's a lot of things that I want to talk about. I mean, for three years when we've been thinking about planting a church, um, there's a lot of things that I wanted to put in front of us as we start this. And, um, and instead of doing that, I think we have the opportunity as we open up, um, we are going to go through the book of Mark for the next year. Um, and it's really important that you understand why we're doing that and, and how we get about that because um, I think the advantage that we have in starting this way is because some of you, um, and some of you, you know, like I said, you're visiting. There's others who heard about redemption through the grapevine or online or whatever it is. Some of you are like just forced to be here. I know my, my buddy Brad, I just made him come here. Um, and so there's some of you guys who are here, maybe don't want to be here, but here's the advantage of doing what we're doing, okay? Um, you may feel awkward like you don't know anyone. Well, well guess what? Nobody knows anyone, okay? This is everyone's first time. And so we get to come here and say, okay, this is our first time to gather. We get to kind of know each other. We all start from square one. We're going to open up our Bible, and this is the question we're going to ask. Who is Jesus? So I want to make this very clear for all of us. What we are going to put in front of us constantly as a church is Jesus. So when we read the Bible, we have to understand the lens in which we need to read it, that the Bible isn't about us. So I had the advantage to go to GCU, and this is the mantra I said over and over and over again, that when we read the story of David and Goliath, you are not the one who can't, who conquers your giants. Jesus is the one who conquers your giants. You're not the one who sacrifices your idols like Abraham and Isaac. No, Jesus was the one who was going to be sacrificed. So the Bible is about Jesus. And no matter how much we want to toward it, we can say this or this, prosperity gospel, poverty gospel. We can say, uh, look look at this is what the Bible gives me. We can see it as a means to a different end. But in the end, it is about Jesus. And it's really awesome that we get to start where we do because the truth is some of us have a lot of preconceived notions. And and, and we'll get into that. So here's what I want to do. Um, Teresa just came up here and and read Mark chapter 1. And to be honest with you guys, it's it's a crazy place to start. Um, And it's like walking in. My kids are the worst at this. Um, You know, so sometimes I'll take the boys out and we'll go do something and we'll come home and Candace has been watching some chick flick or whatever. And they'll walk in. It's about halfway through the movie. And I hear them. They're like, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? And Candace is like, buddy, you, you can't just walk in. You know what I mean? I'm like, get over here. Um, you, you walk into a movie and you don't know who it is. And I think that's the issue. For some of us, we're coming. Now, we were raised in a place where, like, God wasn't spoke of. We never went to church. And some of you guys are on the other end, right? You were, you were like, born on the altar. You watch Simpsons, you're going to hell. Family Guy, you're going to hell. And, and all these, but, but there's this spectrum that we have to kind of reach and go, okay, let's not for the sake of patronizing anyone, but for the sake of us all being on the same page, let's start with the beginning of the story. Because when you pick up the gospel of Mark, one of the first gospels written, it's beginning to talk about Jesus. But some of us don't even know how we got here. Okay? So, so here's what I mean. Um, if you were to pick up the Bible and you were just to start reading through, you're going to notice this throbbing about this man coming. So, so here, let, let's start with, with in Genesis. Whether church or not, you're raised in church or not, you're probably familiar with the Genesis account, right? God is creating all these things. He's fastening trees. He's creating animals. He's doing wonderful things. Well, as he creates these things and he creates man, he rests, right? And so here is man in perfect unity finding all this joy in God. And then what you have is man chooses not God. And when man chooses not God, things are broken. And God looks at three characters, looks at Adam, he looks at Eve, and he looks at the devil, the serpent, okay? And it's a big deal because he looks at Adam and says, listen, you could have worked and it would have been easy. Bummer, right? He could have worked and it would have been easy, but now it's going to be hard. He looks at Eve and says, you you, you could have had children and it not hurt. 
bummer, but now it's going to hurt. And then he looks at the serpent and, and says, listen, you're going you're to slime on your bell, belly all day long, every day. But, but then he, he has this kind of caveat, and it's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. In Genesis 3.15, it says this, that there is going to be the offspring, even though there's enmity between you and, and the offspring of Eve, there is going to be someone who comes, and though you bruise his heel, he is going to bruise your head. And so there's this first prophecy from the very beginning of time that someone is coming, that even though things are broken, someone is coming to fix it. There's this throbbing in the Old Testament over and over, and it doesn't stop because you get these images. You get these prophets who come on the scene and say, hey, listen, we recognize that, that you, are, you and your relationship between God is broken, that you and your relationship between each other is broken, your relationship with yourself is broken, your relationship with creation is broken, but there is someone who is coming who is going to save the day. And there are hundreds of prophecies. I just want to read one. There literally are hundreds. Um, this is in Jeremiah 23. They're very similar to this. A lot of them read like this. This is what it says in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which we will, he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So there's people over and over in the Old Testament telling us, hey, there's someone coming. There's someone coming. And then you get what Teresa just read. After all this waiting, you get what Teresa just read. But here's the problem. Before Jesus arrives on the scene, before we get the, the awesome words of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there's 400 years where God doesn't say anything. And though there's this throbbing in the Old Testament of people waiting over and over, I hate that it's so hard to be in relationship with people. You walk down the aisles in the grocery store, and, and, and you see 10 ways to be a better lover. This is how you find fun. This is how to keep a guy. All these things because we recognize the brokenness in the world. Even our culture, Christian or not, understands that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And people in the Old Testament recognize the same thing. And in recognizing this, what they do is they wait for the Messiah, but he's just not coming when, he, when they want him to come. And so what they do is they begin to look at the Old Testament and they come up with ways they think he should come. Now, this is important because some of them, um, just this, this is going to apply perfectly to us. Some of us, some of them think that he's going to come like Katniss Everdeen as a conqueror and, and, and overthrow Rome and, and no longer are they going to be captive. Some of them think that he's going to politically rise up and be the president. Some of them say, forget all of it. Let's move out here. And he's going to start a new culture. And the truth is, that's not how Jesus comes. That's not what Jesus does. And it's really awesome that he doesn't, doesn't do that because we come with these preconceived notions. So listen, hear me when I say this. Everyone's first time, Christian or not Christian, barely trying to figure out Jesus or you're super solid. Here's the truth. We come into this room with preconceived notions of who Jesus Christ is. For some of us, he's way too Republican. For some of us, he's way too Democrat. For some of us, he's way too liberal, conservative, rich, poor. Some of us, he loves too much. Some of us, he executes judge. Uh, justice too much. And in the end, Jesus does not fit in this box. And we have these preconceived notions. And so here's what we're going to do for the next year. Well, who is he really? That's the question we want to ask. And, and today, I, I, my prayer is that we get at who he is. Next week, we're going to get at what he's all about, what he says he's all about. And then the following week after that, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to get at what our response is to that. And so I would just say, man, if this is your first time, at least stick it out for three weeks and, and that you'll understand what Redemption Peoria plans to be all about. So with that being said, we're going to go to the Gospel of Mark. Now, here's, here's what I want to do. Um, it's important that we understand 
what Mark is. So you just read and, and you how that immediately goes to John the Baptist. Well, there's, there's kind of a, a trick to this. If any of you guys are familiar with the church game, like you know the Bible pretty well, you know there's four books um, that, that tell the story of Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as you read these stories, there's been tons of discrepancies, right? Like there's two angels at the tomb. There's one angel at the tomb. Why does he do this in this gospel? I'm not that. Okay. And the problem is, I'm just going to be, hopefully this helps you. A, a lot of us read the gospels, the story of Jesus, as if it's meant to be a camcorder account. Like people are recording it on their iPhone, catch, catching what Jesus does. But that's not how, or more importantly, why the Gospels are written. The Gospels are written very intentionally to certain people. And Mark, being one of the first Gospels, is written to a people who do not have, a, like, a, like a, the background I just laid out, they don't have, they understand it kind of in a quasi way. But more than anything, he's writing very intentionally for, for many purposes. Now, now, here's something I want you to recognize, because this is what's going to catapult us to where we want to go. Here's what's crazy about the Gospel of Mark. We're going to read the Gospel of Mark, and I want you to notice something as we go over it the next year. In the entire story of the Gospel of Mark, no one ever recognizes who Jesus is, except the demons. No one ever says, that's, Je- that's the Son of God. No one. Now, here's what's crazy. We as the readers know who he is from the very first line. But for the whole story, there's this, who is this guy? Even his disciples, he asked his disciples in Mark 9, who do people say I am? And some people say, some people say this, some people say this. But Mark never declares, okay? And he jumps right into his ministry. So he's not like Ricky Bobby. He doesn't care about baby Jesus. He's not, he's not concerned with the birth of Jesus. He immediately goes to his ministry, and he begins to lay out what Jesus is going to do. And so that, that's what we're going to do. I actually want to share a quote so you kind of understand. There's a, um, a great book, and, and it's kind of thick, but it's, um, it's a book. Uh, it's a quote from this guy named Hayes. I have it right here. Um, Richard Hayes, it's called The Moral Vision of the New Testament, and, and I think we have it here. I, I want to read this for you so you kind of understand what we're, we're getting at and the suspense of what's taking place. The opening revelation sets up a dramatic irony that serves as the mainspring of the story. We as readers know the identity of Jesus from the first line, but none of the characters in the story know it, except as we shall see the demons, just like I said. Consequently, the story suspense arises from the awful tension between the reader's knowledge and the ignorance of the actor's. A guy named Adrian Smith, who's a professor at uh, Redeemer Seminary, would say that this story is a drama. So, so I want us to hear this. It's not a camcorder account. It's made to be a drama. We're going to read it. And he's Jesus. He's the son of God. And people don't even know. They don't even recognize who he is because they have preconceived notions. And that's what I want us to get at today. How many of us are missing who he is? We don't even see it. And we're going, how do you not see that this is the son of God? So let's do it. Um, in, uh, in Mark chapter 1, this is how it starts, uh, and I hope this is helpful. Um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're, we're, this is how it's going to work for us, and hopefully we do this all through Mark. I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, and, and uh, hopefully that helps. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's this first declaration, and I, I don't want to just skip over this, and I hope I don't stop every six words. But um, here's, here's why this is important, okay? The beginning of Jesus Christ, the, the gospel. So the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's two things that you have to recognize. The first things we can see of who Jesus is. One, when the Jews hear this, when they hear the son of God, they immediately go, wait a minute, are you saying you're God? Like Mark's account going, whoa, wait a minute, you're telling me the one we've been waiting for in the Old Testament, the one that's throbbing in the Old Testament, someone's coming to fix it. Someone's coming to fix it. He's referred to as the son of God. He's here. 
That Jesus that we've been waiting for, the Messiah. So you know Jesus' last name is not Christ, right? Okay? It's the, that, that just means the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the righteous one, who is coming to fix all things. And this, from the very beginning, Mark says, hey, you as a reader, understand this. Jesus is God. He is God incarnate. He is in the flesh, and he is here to save the day. And here's the other thing. This term, the gospel, we throw this around in our, our, our culture all the time. That's the gospel truth. We understand what the gospel is. It's maybe the four books in the New Testament. But here, here's the reality. The gospel was there way before Jesus came on the scene. Um, the gospel, actually, this is a term that refers to victory. So um, if you have two battles, uh, two uh, uh, countries battling each other, and one country ends up winning, they would send a runner. This is also where you get the Greek goddess Nike from. There's a lot of the weight your shoes. Anyway, so um, there's... There's this person who would run and they would declare the gospel victory, victory. We've won the battle. And so Mark is saying from the outset, here's what we know. It's God that we've been waiting for. And he is a God of victory. He has won. He's come here to fix things. It's awesome. And then he immediately pushes us to the old Testament and saying this, as it is written in the uh, Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one who is crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So John or, uh, Mark immediately points to um, the old Testament to show that there's this man, uh, not just Jesus, the Messiah who is prophesied, but there's this man who's supposed to come prepare the way. And then we get this dude, John the Baptist. Here we go. If you don't know anything about John the Baptist, this dude's for real. Um, John the Baptist. Um, so then it says in verse four, and then John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance, of forgiveness of sin. And all of the country of Judea and the Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Okay, so let's just set the framework here. This long-awaited Messiah is supposed to have someone to lay out the red carpet for him, okay? And so here comes John the Baptist, and he's, I'm that one. I'm the one who's supposed to prepare the way for Jesus as prophesied in Isaiah 40. I'm the person who's supposed to come and prepare the way. And here's this dude, okay, who rolls up, okay, and, 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 and he's, he's got like, I'm going to call him dreads if we can be straight, okay? Um, he's like mangy hair. He's rocking uh, camel clothes, okay? He rocks a leather belt, and he's just out in the wilderness just screaming at cats, okay? And people are like, yes, please, let me talk to this guy. It's so funny because when I was in junior high, I had to take the, the bus all the time. In my family, we never really had a car, and I took the bus all the time. And um, I remember on the bus ride I had to take to get to middle school, um, there was this dude who every time, he was on the same bus route, he got on, I don't know how many stops before me, but he was, he was confident he was Jesus. And every time I talked to him, he's like, no, man, I'm back. And I'm just like, what? Okay? And this is kind of John the Baptist. There's this crazy dude in the wilderness, and all these people in Judea and Jerusalem who know about this long-awaited Messiah are going out, and they're repenting for their sins. This is crazy. Now, John the Baptist and Jesus are actually related. They're cousins. So, I mean, if you could just imagine, when I do premarital counseling and I can see how parents from bride and groom interact, if you can just imagine how some of these conversations go. So, like, Mary is the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth is the mother of John. And, uh, and, and so, Mary kind of goes to um, Elizabeth and says, hey, how's John? how are things going? And, and Elizabeth's like, well, um, he wears smelly animal coats. He has leather. He refuses to brush his hair. Um, he gets his protein from grasshoppers and um, his carbs from wild honey. And I keep telling him, there's bees, so stop going after the wild honey. But he keeps going after the wild honey. But that's enough about John. How's Jesus? And Mary's like, well, he, well he's perfect, right? <laughs> so you don't know how these conversations go, you're just kind of wondering, like, 
here's John, and they, they know each other. They have to know each other. But in this moment, there's this, not this recognition of who he is, right? So here's John the Baptist, and he's just declaring, and people are coming. They're being baptized. They're repenting of their sins, and, and, and it's just a really cool thing. And then it says this in verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So the first declaration is this. Hey, listen, let's get this straight. I'm not the Messiah. There's someone coming after me who is better than I am. And John 3.30 actually says that I must decrease so that he can increase. And so in this moment, John is declaring, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Just a side note. Um, also, we're told in, in Luke 7 that, that John the Baptist is the greatest man born among women. So it's, it's not Tom Brady. It's not, right? Okay. The greatest man born among women is John the Baptist. Okay. And yet in this moment, John says, and he's better than me. So, so whatever, like, righteous leverage you think that God owes you in a debt, understand that the greatest man born among women says Jesus is better. So, so you're not too far behind, okay? So um, this is, and he preached, again, I said, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's what he's saying. You're coming and repenting for your sins and you're going down in the water and, and you're recognizing that you, you were a sinner. This is a re- baptism of repentance. Uh, and, and now you, you uh, repented for your sins and now you can go in and be clean. But Jesus, this one, this long way to Messiah is going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Right. So I got saved in the charismatic world. Everybody better be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Word up. Okay, because I will slain all you right now. Um, no. Um, here's, here's what's, what's interesting. When you have two languages, when you have, when you're going from, let's say Spanish to English or whatever, in this, in this, uh, instance, we're going from Greek to English. There's this term that we go and it's called what you know, translation. We translate from Greek to English. Okay. But there are some words that we don't quite know how to get the answer for, or we don't like the way it translates. And so we transliterate. So we don't translate, but we transliterate. Now that's important because, um, we transliterate the word baptism. It literally, it's baptismo. It's, it's, it literally, if we were to translate it, it means to plunge, okay? Now, I'm not here to argue why you, sh- like, you know, not baby baptism or why we believe in believer's baptism. My point in bringing this up is, John says, I am plunging you right now. And the reason that we transliterated it and didn't translate it is because King James, the first English Bible, one of the first English Bibles we have in 1611, didn't want to be dunked. And so he translated it sprinkled. That's, that's the honest truth. So we, we have now... Um, Uh, I'm baptizing you, I'm plunging you in water, but Jesus is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. The one we've been waiting for is going to come, and he is going to plunge you in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a big deal, because some of us sit here and we say, I still don't quite get who Jesus is, okay? And, And the reason we don't quite understand who Jesus is is because it takes the power of the Holy Spirit for us to process this. And I'm not just saying, like, just live on faith and ignore science, because that's... That's dumb, right? Um, we, we, we believe these things go hand in hand, but the truth is our heart needs to be awakened by the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus comes and he gives us that ability. As he dies on the cross and raises from the dead, we find out later in the story that he gives us the Holy Spirit. He plunges us in the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer in here, the Holy Spirit, as you are plunged in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit keeps you going not just saves you, but keeps you going. It's called sanctification. He, he continues to walk you, walk this out. One day you are going to be glorified through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who does this, and it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. 
He said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And then um, we'll start to wind it down with this in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, this is amazing because here's the image we have. Here is Jesus. John the Baptist is holding him. He puts him under the water. He plunges him. He baptizes him under the water. And as he comes up, it only says Jesus sees this. He, Jesus is the only one sees the heavens tear open. The Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends on him. And then the Father speaks. Now, here's something else we need to understand about Jesus and who he is. This is unbelievable, similar language to the way our story starts because the way God creates is the spirit is hovering over the face of the deep just like the Holy Spirit is hovering over Jesus in this moment God proclaims he says let there be let there be let there be and now in the baptism he says you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased he proclaims and Jesus we're told in Colossians 1 all things are made through Jesus John 1 actually says that Jesus is the very words of God he is the word so as God says let there be it's being created through Jesus so you have the Holy Spirit in creation you have God the father and you have all things being made through jesus christ and now jesus comes to tell us i didn't just make all things but now i'm going to make all things new this is important that we see this and it's jesus who sees this no one else sees this the skies tear tore open and now we get to understand a lot of the beauty of of what's taking place because unfortunately no one else sees this and no one else recognizes this so every single um, year on Christmas, obviously I have a, a seven-year-old, um, a five-year-old, and, and soon Eve is going to be two, Corbin, Titus, and Eve. And um, every year at Christmas time, I get up way earlier before anyone else, and I go for a run. And when I get home, I make sure they're all still asleep. It's about 6.30, 7 a.m. I take the loudest speakers we have, and I put them in the room, okay? And I get a pot and a pan, and then I play a song. It could be a different song. This year was What Does the Fox Say, okay? <laughs> and I play the song. And I go, it's Christmas time, okay? Now, my kids have been so excited for Christmas, like, for weeks. They can't wait to wake up on Christmas Day and open their presents. But suddenly, because it didn't happen like they wanted to, because there's this loud, grown man in their room yelling and hitting a pot and pan, listening to what does the fox say, they don't want to wake up. They they don't want to. So the way they thought it was supposed to happen, it didn't happen. And this is interesting because this is the same way. We, like the Jews, we get mixed up in the way that we want things to go. We don't want to submit to the way that the Bible explains who Jesus is. And in this moment, we're told he's a triune God. He's come to justify. He came as a victor. He comes now with our righteousness. He is the reason. He's the one we've been waiting for, not just in the Old Testament, but he's the very one that our heart throbs for. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that eternity is stored up in our heart. And there's some of you who, like, who've tried to play the stupid game of filling this void with silly trinkets, trying to fill this void with men and women, with, with things and houses, and God's saying, your heart is throbbing for something else. That square squ- is not going to ever fit into that round hole there. It doesn't make sense, but eternity, as he creates you, says, follow me, find me, seek me, long for me, because it's in me that you live, you move, and you find your very being. It's important that we, we know that Jesus in this declaration, it's that. Now, here's, here's how we'll close. Um, I, I think this passage speaks to two people, and it's very important that you understand the two people it speaks to. One, those of you who are Christian in the room and say you do love Jesus, um, I want you to understand just for us, this is a big deal. We're planting a church for mission. You've got to understand that. So we want you to be on board. 
But man, if Sunday's your game and you just want to come play, what a, what a, I'm going to get in trouble for keep saying this, but what a stupid game to play. I mean, to, to, like to pretend to be Christian or like just, what a silly, silly game. And so if that's, but, but here's, here's the, what I want. Man, you have been called, you have been given Jesus Christ um, and for you to hoard him and to be selfish. And we, the first figure that we have is John the Baptist. And our job, like Summer, is to go into our workplaces, do our jobs very well. And as John 1, 1 5 says, that, uh, that we are little lights as he is the great light and the darkness cannot comprehend this. And I pray if you're a Christian, you would understand your role in being on mission. That all we are to do is prepare the way for Jesus because he's great. And the second thing is this. Um, I just want to speak very honestly to those of you who are not Christian. I can't make you continue to come, okay? But I, I would argue um, that for some of you guys, you think that maybe being here, or, or maybe in a minute if you take communion, or um, maybe you join a community, that that is the reason God loves you, and it's your righteous leverage. But, but here's the truth. Um, if we read the very last word in, in this, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, if we don't understand that, we, we miss the whole point of Christianity. It is not what you do. It is not what you're bringing to the table. It is not how many times you've got it right. It's not whether or not you've been a good dad, a good mom, how good of a job you do at work. It's not that reason. You cannot put God into your debt by leveraging righteousness of how you get it right because it's Jesus whom he's well pleased with. And it's Jesus that we need to find ourselves in. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. I, uh, let me just melee you with some verses real quick as we close, because I think this is a big deal. Philippians 3, 9 um, uh, says this, And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that, de- that, de- uh, that depends on faith. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Titus 3, 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, And you, God made alive, not you, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here's the truth. I I got to last year coach my my son, Corbin's basketball team. You know what's crazy about coaching five, six, and seven-year-olds? One, they're terrible at basketball. But two, as you watch them, everyone, and if you were in the, 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 the gym, you would say the same thing. Everyone can't help but look at the train wreck, wreck of the parent who's yelling at their six-year-old because they're living vicariously through them. As if somehow they find merit in their child, their child is love, loved when they do well in basketball. All of us know that's ridiculous. We know that's ridiculous to know that for some reason it's the way my son behaves that I love him. And yet we treat God like this. It's how I behave. It's, it's what I do. It's what I don't do. You know it's ridiculous. And we're told here it's in Jesus that you're loved. May we hold fast to him. May we hold tight to him. May we never let him go. And as the gospel mark is going to continue to lay out, may we see him because it's rugged. It's going to call us over and over to discipleship. May we find out who Jesus really is and not just who we want him to be. Let me pray for you. And then in a minute, uh, we'll take a couple minutes and we'll just be still. And then John's going to come up and lead us in communion. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We're grateful for the opportunity to be able to do this. We would be uh, extremely foolish 
to uh, step up to the plate like this, gather, and think that this is about us. It's not, and we know that. Um, it is about you, Jesus. May we continue to read the gospel of the Holy Spirit you laid out for us and see who Jesus is. May we fall in love with the one in whom you are well pleased, Father. May we not try to earn grace, not by the music we listen to, not by the movies we watch, not even by coming here to church. Jesus, bless this time, but more than anything, bless us as a church. May we be on mission. May we prepare the way. May we call sinners to repentance. May we live a life of repentance, constantly following in love with you. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's how it's going to work. You're going to take a couple minutes and just be still. This is something we'll do every single week. I, I, that's the word. The Holy Spirit is here. I, I'm just trying to explain what the Bible is saying. But in the end, God is doing something in you, right? And so we want to just be still. The band's going to play. Um, and I hope the Holy Spirit works on you into whatever way you want. And then in a minute, uh, John Demeter is going to come up and he's going to lead us in how we want to, as a church, respond together. So take a minute.